Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Once again, that's book of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. If you guys do not have a Bible, there's a, there are Bibles underneath the chair in front of you, and I encourage you to turn to page 818 with me. Once again, that's page 818. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetedness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. As I begin a short kind of a off uh, topic on two sermons, going through Jesus' parables on money, um, join me as we pray again before we jump into the message. Gracious God, would you give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed and that we would do with joy what you have commanded through Christ our Lord. Amen. I wonder how many of us have uh, recently experienced having a conversation. Maybe it wasn't a conversation. You were pretty keen on sharing something that was heavy on your heart to someone, only to discover the person responding to you at the end of those interaction saying something that was just totally off the topic, and you were disappointed to realize, man, this person was not listening to me at all. Clearly, they had something heavy on their heart, but they were not listening to me when I was sharing what was on my heart. Today's passage that Ho Young read comes um, after Jesus was addressing the crowd and his disciples teaching them, warning them about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. It was a serious topic. Jesus was pretty adamant about getting through, warning them. He was talking, and right before the passage that was read, he was warning them about, again, challenging, don't be afraid about making profession of your faith before people. So in the context of these serious warnings against hypocrisy, teaching them, charging them to be courageous, not to be afraid before people, we have this anonymous individual, a young man, who evidently wasn't really listening to what he was teaching. And there's something else on his mind. He had this idea that was burdening him about just rightful portion that he thought he should get 
from this family inheritance. So we sense that there's a disconnect. He's not really in sync with what Jesus was speaking about, but he wasn't really listening. So he comes in verse 13, someone in the crowd, he, he comes to Jesus and says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Um, most likely it's a younger brother because um, he was probably not satisfied with the division of the state. And the Old Testament law actually allows him to come to a rabbi and have the rabbi resolve this sort of a situation. But I don't know if any of you guys had to deal with family feuds, especially when it involves money, especially when there's a large estate or any estate involved. It's messy and really, really difficult. And this younger brother comes in, already decided, I've been wrong, please do this. He's not asking to evaluate. It's like, do justice, and this is what you need to do, teacher. And to this, Jesus says to him, man, it's kind of like giving him a bit of a distance here. Who made me a judge and or an arbiter over you? Jesus is not willing to be drawn into this kind of a people's court, judge Jesus TV. It's like, yes, he will later on when he does return to judge the living and the dead as we recited in the Apostles' Creed. Yes, then he will judge for sure. But during the three years that he's here on earth to do ministry, he's not interested in doing this sort of arbitration. Uh, one commentator says, Jesus came to bring men to God, not to bring property to men. And I think that succinctly kind of summarizes probably what Jesus was thinking and feeling. And he addresses, now remember, there's a young man coming to Jesus asking this question, but he said to them in verse 15, Jesus is not just responding to the young man. He is responding to the young man, but also the crowd that's there, along with the disciples who are there listening, and says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If you're listening, this will kind of echo what Jesus said earlier in verse 1, because Jesus warned the crowd with the disciples there, beware of the, what, leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So warning in verse 1, and again we see a warning happening in verse 15, Pay attention. But if the hypocrisy was what was being addressed, now Jesus is responding to this guy with his quest for arbitration with a warning against covetousness, greed. Hypocrisy, if you think about it, is a spiritual realm. Covetousness in the material realm. Hypocrisy, teaching one thing, doing something else, is about false religion, Materialism, covetousness is about love of wealth. And it's actually the Pharisees who are actually the one teaching the false teachings of hypocrisy. And later on in Luke 16, we are reminded that these false teachers, the Pharisees, are also lovers of money. It's the false teachers who are also lovers of money. 
just as Jesus emphatically warned against hypocrisy, here we have a double take. Take care. It's basically saying, pay attention, observe, be on guard again, look out, avoid, flee from. From what this time? Pay attention, because if you don't, you're going to get in trouble. And now we're talking about covetousness. Before hypocrisy, now covetousness. One dictionary defines, and this is a lexicon, it's like a, that does these word studies, define covetousness as a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or to possess more things than other people have, all irrespective of need. Just more for the sake of more. Covetousness is really lust to have more than one's fair share, just wanting more and more. And you know, if we're dealing with this, we are forever transgressing against God's one of the top ten commandments. The tenth commandment charges us to not covet. We see this in Exodus. Why would God... And his wisdom includes something like this within the top 10 commandments. I mean, the first four we get, you know, don't have any other gods before. Don't make idols. Don't say the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your parents. And then serious ones like, hey, don't commit murder, right? Don't commit adultery. And then what? Don't steal? Don't give false testimony. And ends the top 10 with, you shall not covet. All the other, if you think about it, especially from murder, adultery, stealing, and giving false testimony, usually start with coveting something that you see, that you don't have, that you want. R.C. Sproul says, covetousness is the cause of a person's wanting for himself, what God in his beneficence has graciously, graciously bestowed on someone else. You know, Apostle Paul, again and again, condemns greed and covetousness. It's a serious thing. I mean, we live in a day and age where greed and covetousness is not really pointed out, but he lists it with these fellow other things. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. He's talking in Ephesians. In Colossians, he, he, he's exhorting the Colossians, he said, put to death, therefore, whatever earthly is in you. What? Sexual immorality again. Impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In Ecclesiastes, we learn that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. No, he who loves wealth with his income, it's all vanity. And Apostle Paul teaches his younger, Timothy, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And we come again to verse 15 of Luke 12. Be on guard. Again, against all covetousness. A lot of people have done a lot of bad things. 
for the love of money in history, but also in the Bible. We have people like Achan and uh, Joshua, who, whose love for money caused him to disobey God, caused disaster on himself and his family, death, as well as many of his people. We have famous Delilah, whose love for money led her to betray Samson and also caused death of thousands. And we have one of the very own standing in their midst, Judas Iscariot, who will one day, soon, because of his love for money, come to betray the very Lord that he's been hanging out with, learning from, eating, moving, hearing, learning, betray his master and teacher to eventually take his own life and suffer eternal torment in hell. And even in the book of Acts, we have people like Ananias and Sapphira whose love for money caused them to lie, try to deceive, led them to their execution just like that. Idolizing money, loving money, cause us to trust in the riches more than in God. Love of money deceives us. Love of money serves as a barrier for people to receive the gospel message. In Mark, Jesus warns the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things, which what? Enter in and they choke the word of God and it can't bear fruit. Jesus warns the crowd with this young man and the disciples, one's life, what, does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Abundance to have more than you need. You see, abundance of material possession cannot and does not provide real life. The word life here is an interesting word. Um, in Greek, the original language, there are actually at least three different words that are used and translated differently, often as life. Um, there's the word bios, suke, and zoe. You probably heard of bios and biology, study of life. Suke gets used later on in psychology, and zoe, zoo, zoology. But the word bios, at least in the New Testament, usually is referred to mention this kind of quantitative life, something that can be measured, like how long one lives, how much goods one possesses. Um, suke or psyche, uh, it, it deals, refers to the, the qualitative part of life, to the values and relationships that people have with their personhood. And thus, eventually, we use the word psychology with that root. And the third, zoe, where we use the word zoology now, at least in the New Testament for the most part, and many part, deals with and referring to the quintessential life, real life, life that's offered to mankind, humanity, to call and follow Jesus, eternal life with the Father who created us. Um, the word bios or suke is not used in this verse um, because you know what? Possession, things we have that we can measure does not truly give us real life. It can't. Stuff cannot give us zoe, real life. And this life can only be received freely, undeservedly, from God. 
through the person work of Jesus Christ. Be on your guard, Jesus tells, against trying to achieve or satisfy this real-life zoe with things, getting things mixed up. You can't really live life this way. Now, to illustrate this point to the disciples, the crowd, and to this young man who has basically attacked him with this question that had nothing to do with what he was teaching, Jesus tells a story, a parable, a story with a spiritual lesson. And if you look at the sentence, it's actually pretty significant. It says, he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. If you pay attention to the grammar, it's significant to notice that the subject is the land. It's not the man, not the rich man. It's the land. Land is the focal point, and we are reminded as we pay attention that the consequence of the productivity is based on the land, nothing that the man does. It's the land that produces. And for any one of us who've done any kind of horticulture stuff, farming, we know that farmers, for the most part, even despite all the technology that we have with agriculture, they're largely dependent on the circumstances and factors with the weather that they can't control. And if anyone should be grateful to God, should be this farmer, because God has been gracious in his providence, given this man a lot of produce. This rich man, for the most part, as we look at the verses, he hasn't done anything wrong. He worked ethically. He didn't cheat anyone. He didn't devour widows' home, and he wasn't abusing employees. None of that. We don't see any of that. And God blessed him maturely. God's the one who sent just amount of rain, gave just amount of sun, held back any diseases or pestilence of any kind so that he would bear this abundant fruit. He was a success this particular year. But with great success comes great danger. This sort of false security kind of like some of us who may have dabbed into the stock market in the past, I don't know, like 16 months prior, because the market's going up. It's like, oh, I know what I'm doing, only to boom. But anyway, this guy, foolishly thinking, he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. You see all that my and I? A lot of my's, a lot of eyes. In the original, there's like four my and eight eyes. This guy is full of himself. There is no thankfulness in him. And he's, sure, I mean, perhaps logical to build extra barns, but there's no thought of thankfulness. There's no thought of sharing. There's no thought of stewardship. No mention of the poor, the ill, the naked, the widows, none of that. He is 
fully consumed with himself. He was selfish. A Christian who recognizes that everything we have, we have received from the one from above, we're called to be generous. We can't be selfish. There is something wrong with this sort of a person who's been blessed so much. And Jesus is pointing that out. And his conclusion, in hearing all this, he says, I'll say to soul, excuse me, I will say to my soul, here's his suke, um, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. It's perhaps only one of the only verses you will see in the Bible that explicitly speaks of retirement, but here is on a negative light. Why? Because God is not interested in any sort of retirement that is just self-indulgent. There's nothing here that remotely resonates with the heart of God. Now, the Bible speaks of different seasons where you slow down, but here the problem, this, this retirement package that this guy has been preparing, he's getting ready for, is a pure ticket for self and hedonism. In the scriptures, when we hear, eat, drink, and be merry, it's usually of nothing good. And such retirement that lives for self, what Jesus is pointing out, it's, it's just immoral. Now, in the New Testament time, when you think of hedonism, you might think of, just think of good as being defined as avoiding pain and pursuing pleasure. And one of the early groups, like you have the Cyrenaics who have their creed, where they basically they sought out to live their life seeking as much pleasure as possible. So that means you drink as much as possible to the excess of getting drunk. You eat as much as possible and be gluttonous, probably eat to the extent you eat and throw up and eat again. And you enjoy sex as much as possible and satisfying it. That's how they live. In response to that, there are some Epicurean philosophers who saw that sort of excess as kind of crass. It's like, because if you go that far, it'll just lead to boredom and frustration. So for them, they sought to kind of refine this kind of excess and sought to live kind of a, um, just enough drink, enough food, enough sex, enough pleasure with the optimum level. I think either last week or the week before, as we've been going through the book of Corinthians, we also heard a similar phrase, right? This phrase of eat, drink, and be merry. Because Apostle Paul used a similar phrase when he addressed the Corinthians who were what? Denying the resurrection of Christ. In verse 32 of chapter 15, it says, if the dead are not raised, meaning you know what? If there is no resurrection of Jesus, and if we are not raised in body, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. That's the natural, logical way of living out if you don't believe that God exists, that there is life after death. To eat, drink, and be merry, to live as if there is no God, 
is to be a fool. The Bible speaks of a fool in that way many times. And unlike the Apostles' Creed that we recited today, our creed of our culture is the very thing that we read, is to eat, drink, and be merry. Most of us Americans live with that kind of a foolish creed, working for that weekend. Fool says that there is no God and live. But all this time, what is God thinking? God said to him, verse 20, fool. This night, your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Not yours. God calls him a fool. Because he had many goods laid up, stored kind of like even like one of the first um, storage unit that we... Um, because he's storing up his crops and other goods there. And he thought that he had the security in his old age, yet God had a different plan. This was a fool who lacked common sense and lived his life as if God didn't really exist. There was no eternity. And 60, 80 years that he get to live in this life he could control and knew what was coming. Book of James, I think, wisely reminds us how to live. In chapter 4, it writes, Come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then, poof, vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. There is no bigger fool than he who is not prepared for the life to come, like this fool who prepares to live 60, 80, maybe 100 years, not thinking about eternity that awaits him, not recognizing the fragility of life. Let me ask you, are you ready to meet your maker? Because none of us know. Like this young man who came to Jesus with this question, like any one of us, no one knows what tomorrow holds. Are you ready to meet your maker? We recited the catechism today and were reminded how sin entered, how Adam and Eve in their sin disobeyed God and allowed sin to enter. And we also have that sin, sin nature. We sin because we're sinful. We rebel. We're dead in sin. I don't have to teach little kids to do things, they already know what to do that is rebellious. But as we've been going through in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, we know the essential teaching, right? What the gospel is, because this is what, this is the crux. 
Everything else is secondary. But the crux of the gospel is that what? That Jesus Christ lived perfect life that only he can live and die for your sins and mine. It was buried and what? He was raised to life. And for those who trust in this resurrected Christ, trust in this life and death and resurrection, we're given new life, eternal life. And if that life is real, living, it changes the way we interact with one of the greatest things that has power over us, money and wealth. The response that Jesus is pointing out, how are his disciples supposed to take this response and parable? Jesus gives a clear application. He says in verse 21, so, so he had the discussion, he gives a parable, and now he ends, so is the one who lays up for tre- treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The principle here, that everyone who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God is in big trouble. But instead, we are to treasure store up treasures in the right place in heaven. The location of where we keep our treasure reveals a true condition of our hearts. If I love myself and my possession more, then that shows what I'm really living for. Do we truly love God and are we storing up treasures in heaven where nothing can rust, eat up, or no one can steal. You see, in the Bible, you have the rich and the poor who were rich toward God. You have people who used what God has given them and trusted them and used it for God and God's glory. You have that centurion, the Roman centurion, who built a synagogue for the for God's people. You have Mary, Martha, and Lazarus who used their home, opened it up to welcome Jesus and his disciples and um, showed hospitality. And you have the women, the gospel patrons, who support the ministry of Jesus and the disciples, enabling them to go around and do ministry. These were wealthy people who were rich toward God. And the question I want to ask us, where are you storing up, where are we storing up our investments, our riches? Covetousness, if you think about it, it's a weird thing to talk to a bunch of fishermen and nobodies of Jesus' disciples here. It's like they don't have much. They literally left what they had to follow Jesus. Yeah, why would Jesus talk to the crowd and to his disciples about the importance of being warned against covetousness? Because at the end, it doesn't matter how much you have. You could be wealthy, 
you could have nothing, but you could still, we can still be tempted to be covetous. There's a reason why God included covetousness as number 10 in the commandment. It's a subtle sin, and disciples were not immune to it. Clearly, right? Because Judas fell. One of his very own was tempted. I don't think in all the years that I've done stewardship classes here and stewardship counseling with individuals, anyone ever came to me and said, Pastor Paul, I'm struggling with covetousness. Um, it's, not, it's, it's, it's a subtle sin that's very hard to openly, honestly admit. But it's a serious sin. That's why it's included. And for me personally, why do I teach stewardship classes? Why do I do stewardship counseling? Probably more than anything is because I wrestle with covetousness. And I need to preach to myself. I need to teach the truth again. And every time I have that conversation with someone, I'm having that also with myself. Because there is something here that's bent toward trusting things more than trusting the one who gave those things. Covetousness is a dangerous sin. Similar and different from the sin of hypocrisy that the Pharisees were wrestling with. They weren't wrestling, actually. I mean, they were just sinning that way, and Jesus observed it and pointed out. is that we say as believers in our hearts that we trust in the things above. That's what we wait for. Yet in our moments of weakness, in different times and settings, we find ourselves turning to these things. And isn't that what hypocrisy is? We say our hearts are set on things above, yet our desires often turn to things below. And when we do that, it's really hard to live with joy when you find yourself comparing, looking at things that you don't have how can we live a joyful life when we find ourselves comparing and being covetous? Oh, I don't have that. I want that. Oh, they have that. I don't have that. Ugh. There's no way you can live a joyful, thankful life when we operate in such ways. With the verses that we read, covetousness really is idolatry. Because at the end, when we are covetous, we are worshiping stuff, which clearly isn't God. So this guy that came to Jesus in the beginning of the passage, not listening to anything that Jesus has been teaching, not listening to God's providential work, not listening to the importance of confessing him before men, this man who is just consumed with what's on his heart about getting his fair share or what he deems as fair, his inheritance. And Jesus rightly recognizes that he is dealing with covetousness. 
brothers, sisters, our thoughts, our preoccupation, they reveal what our hearts treasure. Let me ask you a couple of questions today. What do you think about when you are by yourself and you're not frantically trying to do something? Where does your thought and your heart go to? Before you enter through these doors, what was on your heart? Again, we come as we are. We can't pretend to not bring these things. But again, do those things serve primarily as a thing that we want to bring to God or the only thing to bring to God when what is at stake? When we find ourselves in our weakness seeking to obtain blessings of this life more than seeking what lasts in eternity, eternal things. Are you content with your condition? Am I content with my condition? Do I trust that God in his wise and sovereign providence has given me what I have right now? Do I rejoice in the prosperity of my neighbor? Or do I find myself resenting it, envying it? Do you find yourself saying, God, you know what? If you give me this, I think I'll be content. It's like the millionaire. It's like, how much more do you need? Just a little more. But that's not any different than someone else. How might the Lord be teaching us to learn what it means to be content. Because Apostle Paul had to learn it himself too. And practically, the only thing that we, we get to see or keep is people and relationships. Nothing that we hold with our hands we can take when we die. The Lord reminds us and calls us to be rich toward him, to value what we have in him, what we have in the gospel. And how do we show that practically? I think one of the best ways is in the way we use the resources and the, um, whatever he has given us in the way we serve one another. As we go into the response song, I want to invite you to meditate on the lyrics of these this old hymn. It says, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Be thou my wisdom, and thou my true word. I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. Thou, my great Father, and I, thy true Son, thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, mine inheritance now and always, thou and thou only, first in my heart, 
High King of Heaven, my treasure thou art. High King of Heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joy, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Let's pray. Lord God, would you be our vision? Would you captivate our hearts and our minds? We confess and we acknowledge that we are so often consumed by things that we think are so important, and often they are urgent, but we fail to recognize what is truly important. Lord, may we not be like this foolish young man who came to you, could have asked anything, yet because he was so consumed with what he thought was important, he wasn't listening or paying attention to what you were teaching. Lord God, would you soften our hearts as we come before you. Do in us what you must to bring us to yourself so that all that you have given us can be used for your glory so that we may indeed store up treasures in heaven which will truly last. Amen. Continue to pray and examine your heart as we get ready to respond.